13 years ago, uh, next month, I bought the house that I live in today. And I spent the first 12 years and 10 months of that occupancy doing absolutely none of the things that a responsible homeowner does to take care of a property. Uh, which means that for the past two months, I've been paying for it dearly with massive projects all around the house. Uh, for example, my dad, my brother, and I tackled the basement. It was a 1970s-era finished basement that sometime between the 1970s and today had gotten wet repeatedly, which meant there was rot and mold, and none of these things should I tell publicly since I'm about to try to sell my house, but whatever. So my dad, my brother, and I, we got down there. We did like the project, like ripping out this nasty old walls and ceiling and carpet, and we thought it was going to take three days because that's what smart people who know how this stuff goes told me. But what those smart people didn't realize was just how ready to go my basement was. So it took six hours, literally, to gut the whole basement because my dad would, for example, take his little mini crowbar and place it where a panel of drywall on the ceiling was nailed to a rafter. And he would, he would he'd put it in there. He'd, he'd move it about an eighth of an inch, just a little and the whole ceiling panel would just collapse on the floor right in front of us. So we ripped the basement out, but before we could take the basement out, I had to get all the crap out of the basement. And by crap, I mean all of the remnants of close to 40 roommates who have lived with me in my house over the past 12 years. Almost 40 friends, some of them there for a year or two at a time, some of them there for a few months when they were between things, or maybe they uh, had a domestic situation that wasn't going well and they needed some space or maybe they were uh, doing a medical rotation for a few weeks, or maybe they were uh, just in town for a long weekend for a game that somehow turned into a week or a month. Uh, but point being, it seems like every one of those roommates left some artifacts behind, and so I feel like I was excavating the deep history of the house that we call the manor, which is our way of putting a fancy name on this old house. So anyway, so I was down there excavating the remnants of all these old roommates, and as I pulled things out of the basement and cursed them, for leaving junk in my house that now I had to run a dumpster to get rid of, I was thinking about all these faces and people that I've lived with over the years. And it struck me as my, my mind sort of moved through the Rolodex of friends that I've lived with, it struck me all the different sort of frequencies that I've experienced with these different friends, these different depths of connection or relationship. And we talked a little bit about this last week. Um, there were friends who were in the house that were like really great roommates, but we, weren't, we didn't really hang out together a lot. We kind of passed each other in the hallway. Maybe they were going to work just as I was going to bed, which is kind of how it's often worked in my house or whatever. Like we got along great. They kind of kept to their selves and I kept to mine. There were other friends that uh, they came in like brothers and were like thicker than thieves today because we had that experience of living together for a while, like a very deep and soulful connection. There were some people who I thought were friends and then we lived together and now we're not. <laughs> so there's all those different sort of frequencies of experience together, right? Uh, and I thought about that and I especially thought about um, the deep connections that were forged with some of my friends as we lived together and the way that some of us experience that today and how grateful I am for that. And I was thinking about how uh, when we get quiet for a moment, when we think for a moment about what really makes life rich or meaningful, surely somewhere in that equation is a deep and soulful sense of connection with a few other people. Uh, if you're married, I imagine this is what you want with your spouse. Um, but if, if you are married, I'd probably suggest that like to have that with one other person, like a deep sense of connection and vulnerability, may not be enough. Like you might want to have a few friends alongside you too. If you're not married, I would say that I think most of what we long for in terms of connection isn't privileged for marriage. I think most of what we long for in terms of connection is available if we will just walk with one another and grow with each other and figure out what actually creates the conditions for a, a deep sense of life together, right? Now, there's an interesting moment uh, early in the scriptures 
in the book of Genesis. This is like the first book of the Bible. And in Genesis 2, the setting is um, that, that God has just done all this creating of the world. And then we see that God reaches down to the dust and forms a man out of the dust and then breathes into that. And the man is named Adam, which, by the way, is Hebrew for human, which seems to be an author's way of winking at us, saying this is a story about all of us in some way, right? And we read there about Adam uh, living, and this is before the story mentions any kind of friction or fracture. At this point in the story, we've not heard of any kind of breakdown or failure on Adam's part. We've not seen anything that would have severed his sense of connection with God. Like everything seems to be exactly the way that you would want it to be. But right there, before anything has gone wrong, before anything has broken down or fallen apart, before any of that has entered the story, before any of that, we read this in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good for the man to be alone. So Adam hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything to distance himself from God or from other people or anything else. And yet even in that moment, the scripture names a kind of loneliness in his life and says this isn't good. Let's do something about it. Now, I raise that because I first want to say that if you experience some kind of aching, craving desire for some connection with other people, if you have a loneliness that's disturbing you right now in life, I just want to tell you, your experience may not be telling you what's wrong with you. It may be telling you what's right with you. I think often like when we are lonely, when we ache for a deeper sense of connection, that can translate back into our insecurities about ourselves. It becomes a verdict on what's wrong with us because we think if everything were right with me, I wouldn't be experiencing this desire for connection that I don't have right now. If everything were right with me, I would probably just be experiencing perfect relational fulfillment. But I'm just raising from the scriptures the possibility that that's not actually true. And maybe the fact that you are aching for a deeper sense of belonging with a few other people, a deeper sense of connection, that might be a sign that something is alive and awake within you, which is beautiful. Listen to that. Pay attention to that. So we want to talk uh, today and in the next few weeks more about how we might live at that sense of deep frequency connection with a few other people. Not that we'll have this with everyone in our lives, not that we'll have this with all of our friends, but that there might be a few people in our lives that we can experience a deep frequency connection with, and maybe there are some ways that we can help one another get there. So uh, today, I'm going to throw a few kind of big ideas out there and hope that they come together in a way that's helpful for you. And if not, you can tell me about it after the gathering. That's great, okay? Uh, but let's start here. Um, the early church, the first followers of Jesus, uh, just in the decades after the actual life of Jesus, if you read the history of the church in the scriptures and documents surrounding the scriptures that come from that time, one of the things that's apparent that made the church radical and revolutionary and powerful in the world was that people that became a part of the church experienced uh, a sort of never-before-seen kind of inclusion and acceptance and community with all kinds of other people. It seems to have been the kind of thing that defies regular human connection because in the early church we saw insiders and outsiders all coming together. We saw rich and poor coming together. We saw Jews and Gentiles with very, very, very different religious traditions and moral perspectives coming together around their experience of Christ. And it created a deep frequency connection for these people that made them alive and made them brave and helped them do the other things that made the church important in the world at that time. And it seems clear when you read the writings of the church and you hear the stories of the early followers of Jesus that one of the things that marked them through and through, this is one of those things, by the way, that is so present in the New Testament that you could miss it the way that a fish misses the water they're swimming in. 
Like it's, it's, it's in the background of everything that seems to be written, but if, if you don't pay attention, you might miss it. One of the big ideas for them is that God has actually arrived in flesh and blood. God actually incarnated. God actually has shown up. God has actually been here and embraced us and looked us in the eye. God has actually lived in the experience of being a human and walking around on planet Earth. And it seems to have compelled them to do the exact same thing for one another. Which is to say that to take Jesus seriously is to take incarnation seriously, which is the sort of big word for showing up in flesh and blood. Which is to say that if if we're going to have this deep frequency connection with one another, one very basic big idea is we might have to actually show up. Now so far maybe you're thinking that's a little bit basic and you didn't need to drive all the way to church to get that. I understand. But there's actually a lot of um, things going on in our world today which suggest that we need to say to one another again, it's important that we actually show up. Like we actually need to be there. We actually need to be present with one another. And maybe the deep frequency connection that we are longing for is waiting on the other side of of a better habit of actually showing up. Uh, A week ago Tuesday, so like a week ago today, I got a text message from a good friend of mine who lives in Chicago, and it was sort of out of the blue, and it was a long text, and it described uh, that he was driving back to Chicago after having visited his parents, and that while he was with his parents, um, something had erupted in their family. Like uh, a kind of conflict had just sort of exploded um, between him and his parents and his brothers and sisters, and he was driving home sort of feeling the the shock of what had just happened. And so I called my friend while he was driving back to Chicago. And um, he was very emotional. And he's not like, usually a very emotional person. And he was crying a bit on the phone and telling me what had happened and what he was feeling about it. And then the other thing that, that made it so severe for him was that that was Tuesday. And then Saturday was going to be him graduating from his trauma surgery residency. So this friend of mine who spent the last five years in a residency as a surgeon. Uh, He does this at Mount Sinai Hospital in Chicago. Um, You often hear about the gun violence in Chicago, uh, the shootings, the homicides that are happening. So he spends uh, 80, 90, 100 hours a week on his feet in the hospital that receives most of those shooting victims operating on their bullet wounds and trying to get them back to life. And so he spent five years of his life doing that, and it's a really big deal. I think, I don't know if I've ever worked that hard at anything. (laughs) Like, Like five years of the most grueling kind of hour after hour labor to try to serve other people with no pay and and not a lot of reward. And then at the end of it, there's this moment where you're going to be honored by your colleagues and the doctors that you worked for are going to say, hey, you finished your residency. You are a surgeon. And he realized that because of this family conflict that had just blown up, uh, he was going to have that moment alone. And his parents weren't going to be there. And... um, so that broke my heart, and I was sitting with that for a day, and then the following day is Wednesday, and I was actually over here in the corner. Our team was meeting on Wednesday last week, and I got a phone call from a mutual friend of ours who lives out in San Francisco, and I left our meeting for a moment and stepped over to take it, and my friend Josh says, uh, hey, did you hear what happened to, uh, we call our buddy Masty, which is like a nickname for him, but did you hear what happened to Masty? I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, here's the deal. Uh, Amy and Caitlin and I, who are all out in San Francisco, we think we should show up. So we're going to take the red eye Friday night, and we're going to surprise him Saturday morning at brunch and be there for his residency. You want to join? And I thought, yeah, this is exactly right, you know? Get another phone call. Buddy Corey in Boston is doing the exact same thing. So we got this whole crew that's going to show up and surprise him at brunch Saturday and stick around for his dinner with his colleagues uh, Saturday night. So that's Wednesday we make the plan. And by Thursday, I'm already backing off of it. (laughs) I'm thinking, I don't know if this is responsible. I got to preach a sermon that I haven't prepped very well yet. 
we've got a lot going on with the church. I'm thinking, um, you know, the other guys are going to be there. And then I'm thinking this. I'm thinking, it probably doesn't that matter that much if I'm there. I, I'm probably operating with an inflated sense of self-importance if I think that Master really needs me to be there uh, for this moment in his life. I'm not, you know, actually like his brother or his father. Like, we're friends. Um, so that voice starts speaking up to me, but I'm grateful that there's another sort of voice that I hear, which is the voice of a mentor of mine who for years has drilled into me a simple piece of clarity. And the more complicated my life has gotten, the more grateful I am for the few things that I absolutely believe. And this is one of those things I believe because my mentor taught it to me and it's paid off. What he told me was, if you ever are wondering whether you should show up or not, a wedding or a funeral or your friend's having a bad day or whatever. He said, if you're ever wondering, if you're kind of on the fence about whether you should show up or not, he said, the answer is always show up. And he drilled that into me and I saw him live it with a lot of integrity. And I've tried practicing that in my life. And the more complicated my life has gotten, the more grateful I've been for that clarity. And so even as part of me doubted whether I should really like get a hotel room and change my schedule and be in Chicago for all of this stuff, another part of me realizes, yeah, that's definitely the right thing to do. And so I did. So we do the thing Saturday morning, we surprise him at brunch. And then Saturday night, we're at the dinner together. And uh, he wins a couple of awards. He was the chief resident in his class. And we got to like, you know, be obnoxious and really loud and clap for him and embarrass him just a little bit among all the professionals in the room. And, uh, and then I had to grab a train because I um, had taken the train over so I could work on the way to Chicago and work on the way back because that felt like the right thing to do. And so I'm like down to the minute watching my Uber, thinking I have exactly 12 minutes to get to Union Station to grab the last Amtrak back to South Bend. You know, and I, um, so I kind of, in the middle of the dinner, I have to go up and I give Masty a hug and I say, I'm really proud of you, man. And you know that moment like where you hug someone and you think the hug's done? <laughs> I thought the hug was done, especially because Masty's not like the touchy-feely emotional type, you know? I don't know how many doctors you know, but, like, but I thought the hug was done and apparently it wasn't. Um, and then he just, um, sort of while we were hugging, he just said some things to me about what it meant that I was there. And I was riding the train home, and it's like midnight on the Amtrak, and I'm like, church is in like three hours or something like that, and I'm tired. And I'm like, I'm afraid my sermon's going to fumble a little bit because I could have really used this whole day to make it a little bit better. And then I thought to myself, um, I would rather have a slightly sloppy sermon and have a little more integrity with the things I'm about to say than have a perfectly formed sermon and less integrity with the things that we are saying to one another. And so, um, so this is like the first big idea, and it's not profound, or sophisticated. I didn't have to read 18 books to come up with this, and neither do you, and you probably didn't need me to say it for you to figure it out. But I want to start there. I want to say, like, this is what we do. We show up. We're there. It's, it's just like, it's what we do. I believe that that's what we're, we're supposed to be. I believe it's what's true of us when we are at our best. We actually show up, and I'm absolutely convinced. I'm absolutely convinced that the reason we don't is often not because we're prideful or too busy or too narcissistic or too selfish. I'm absolutely convinced that often the reason we don't show up is we don't believe it matters. We say, surely my presence in that person's life wouldn't really make that big of a deal, but I'm here to tell you presence actually matters, and so yeah, that's what we do. We actually show up. And by the way, the reason I said I think we do need to say this out loud again to one another is the data on social isolation is growing like crazy right now. Like we are seeing a reality that we are creating together in the Western world in the year 2018 where more and more of us have fewer and fewer actual moments of connection with other people. More and more of us are living alone. More of us are experiencing sacred moments in life alone. And the more that happens, the more the health outcomes are worse. 
Uh, it's been well correlated that diabetic re uh, risk goes up, heart disease risk goes up, uh, the indicators that point toward uh, Alzheimer's all go up, all kinds of negative consequences in our lives because we are alone more and more. And the thing is, we don't have to be. There's no reason that we have to be alone. We could just show up. And so maybe we need to look each other in the eye and remind each other it matters. It's deeply written into the story of Jesus that the character of God is a God who actually shows up and we could live in that pattern. Now, what happens when we show up and it doesn't go well? What happens when you show up thinking it's time for that sort of deep frequency connection that I, I arrive for, it's what I'm here for, right? What happens when like you get there but then the thing you experience between you and the other isn't that deep soulful connection? What happens when you go in for the hug and instead of it lasting longer, they don't want it, right? Like, what happens when you don't find that deep frequency connection? Well, I want to propose a couple of ways that we could work on that or a couple of factors that might be in play. First of all, another story. Uh, so years ago, uh, I was working at another church and um, we came up to the weekend right after Thanksgiving and I was on to preach and I had picked up a, a doozy of a, like a bronchitis cold combo going into Thanksgiving and it got worse and worse. And so I preached the weekend, which there meant five services and uh, pretty like high octane, you know? And so what I learned about my body was that if I was sick, I could make it through the preaching because your adrenaline would just kind of get you through. And then I knew that I could collapse on the other side of it and die if I needed to, right? Like I'll just get through the weekend and then I'll, you know, my body will then punish me but that's fine. This is my job, and then I have Monday off, you know? So that was the way that it was going to go. But the problem was the day before the weekend that I preached, uh, something erupted in the life of our church, uh, which is we got word from somebody who was um, telling us that one of my teammates in our senior leadership um, had acted repeatedly in a way that um, severely violated uh, the kind of life that uh, we were supposed to live in general, let alone somebody who leads a church. And there was a victim involved in the story. And, um, and it was a real crisis for us. So that, that blew up the day before I preached that weekend. And so I preached the weekend. And then we jumped right into the hardest week of my entire ministry history. The hardest week of meetings and conversations that I've ever been a part of in my life. You know, we confront the person who's being accused. And um, there's no ownership whatsoever. So then it's a he said, she said. And then we've got a dig deeper to figure out what really went on here. We want to take everybody seriously. Um, we want to take victims seriously. We want to assume the best about our teammates. And in that moment, those two principles were irreconcilable. And so we had to keep working and digging. It meant, um, it meant uh, meetings with lawyers. It meant reaching out to the prosecutor's office because we weren't sure if what had been accused would have been illegal. Uh, it meant um, polygraph tests. It meant searching cell phone records and working with IT forensics. It meant um, round after round of in-your-face conversation to try to figure out what really happened and what we were supposed to do about it. And uh, so instead of collapsing on Monday, I stepped into an even higher adrenaline situation than the one that I had just preached through. And so for the next four days, it was like 12 hours a day of meetings. And then on Thursday of that following week, we took a dinner break for a couple of hours. And during the dinner break is when I found out that my adrenaline had been getting higher and higher. My body had been getting sicker and sicker, and I just didn't know it. So uh, we get a two-hour dinner break, and so I, I call up a buddy. Uh, some of you guys know Jeff, who plays drums for us often. Uh, so Jeff and I go out to the prestigious establishment in town known as Brothers Bar and Grill at Eddy Street Commons. 
So we're there at like 6 o'clock, and we grab a burger, and we hang out for a bit, and then it's time for me to jump back into those meetings for the rest of the evening around 8 o'clock that night. And we walk out of Brothers Bar and Grill, and we get to the sidewalk there, and then something happens to me which has never happened in the history of the world for any human being ever, and it's this. Gravity turned 90 degrees to my right out of nowhere. I mean, like, one second I'm walking along, and gravity is that way, and my body stands up straight, and the next second it was like an electromagnet on the side of my head pulled me to the ground, and the world started spinning violently, and I started vomiting my brains out. I, um, everything in my body was telling me that I had to go that way, and I did not know why. So I'm, I'm laying here on the ground, and my poor friend Jeff is watching me. Like, I just collapsed on the sidewalk, but I'm still conscious, and I'm, I'm puking sideways, and I can't even get my head from here to here. And he goes to get the car so he can take me to the hospital. We don't know what else to do. And then he gets the car all the way over there, and I'm laying here, still puking my brains out, looking at his car, thinking, Jeff, I don't think I'm getting in your car, man. And Jeff says, yeah, I don't think you are either. So we call an ambulance, and I get in the ambulance, and um, I remember the whole ride in the ambulance, I kept thinking, why is the driver going in circles so fast? Because it felt like, you know, like, when you turn hard and your body gets pulled a certain direction, he wasn't going in circles, but my, my body was so confused about what was going on. So we go to the hospital, and then uh, they tell me what's happening. I'm completely incoherent and can't understand any of it because they drugged me real good, you know? <laughs> the next moment I remember is waking up on my parents' couch for a minute the next day, and then my next memory is from like two days later. Let me tell you what happened. My experience was that between me and the world around me, everything was wrong, right? All of a sudden, like, my relationship to all of my surroundings was completely jacked up. What actually happened uh, was inside there. That's my inner ear. Well, it's not my inner ear. That's a, it's a model of the inner ear, in case you were wondering. Um, and my best understanding of this is that somewhere in the vestibular nerve or the vestibule, somewhere in the inner, inner part of that to the right, something went wrong inside me. Because, like, we have our ears, and they're good for hearing, but our ear systems are also good for other things. And on a normal day, the way that your body relates to everything around it with balance and orientation is it takes input from like your feet on the ground. That's sort of felt input, right? And it takes input from your eyes when they see things that should be level, like a horizon, for example. And it takes what happens in here where you have left and right uh, little sensors that sort of uh, uh, maybe not unlike the little bubble in a level. Right? So as you kind of turn the level up and down, like things kind of move back and forth. And when everything's happening exactly the way it ought to, the, the data from your eyes and from your feet and from both sides of your head, it all paints a coherent picture. It's all sort of harmonized, right? And that's why we can walk around. And then there's a moment when a sickness, a virus, a bug gets into your inner ear and disrupts something in that vestibular nerve area. And all of a sudden, those levels get jacked up a little bit, and that's enough to completely and violently disrupt your relationship with your surroundings and throw you to the ground, and you can't stop puking. <laughs> now, I tell you that story for two important reasons. The first one is completely self-serving. Uh, but remember what I just described happening here. So it's a weeknight. It's turning to that point in the night where Brothers Bar and Grill goes from being a respectable establishment to not so much. At that point in my career, I discovered that being a pastor at a big church in a small town means anywhere you go, people recognize you. And for something like 30 to 45 minutes, I'm laying on the ground, vomiting my brains out, partially when Jeff's gone and I'm there by myself. And dozens, literally dozens of people walk by me. Some of them literally step over me, <laughs> like the story of the priest and the Levite and the man on the side of the road who's been beaten and left for dead. 
And what I'm convinced to this day is that there are some people who are part of my church who walked by and quietly thought to themselves, wow, Pastor Jay got after it early at Brothers today and couldn't handle it. So first of all, on a completely self-serving level, I tell you that story to say, no, I wasn't hammered out of my mind puking at Brothers on a Thursday night, okay? The second reason I tell you that story is not to clear the air, but because it's a story about something being wrong inside me and it completely and violently disrupting my relationship with everything around me. And if you find that you you can't get your hands on like a deep or soulful or resonant connection with other people, if you can't find some deep harmony with your spouse or a couple of your best friends, I want to suggest it could be that the dissonance between you and them is related to a dissonance within you. That the difficulty finding a harmony with other people, a deep and soulful harmony with other people, it could be connected to something that isn't harmonized within you. That, um, that some painful relationship with your own past, some part of yourself that you're running from, something unreconciled, some wound that hasn't been healed, something within us might contribute to a dissonance between us. This shows up, for example, in scriptures like in James. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? The writer is saying, why is there dissonance between you? Don't you know it's connected to the dissonance within you? So I want to say something that we said um, often in this community because it really matters to us that we recover uh, this sort of central power of the gospel to lead us into our own inner work. I want to suggest that um, paradoxically or unexpectedly, it might be that um, some, some, some solitude, some silence, some digging into your own story, your own history, might actually help you find a deeper sense of connection with other people. In my experience, people who are afraid of their own depths are going to have a hard time meeting other people in the depths. And that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If there's a deep frequency that we are made to find one another on, well, it means I have to be able to go to that deep frequency in my life to meet you on that deep frequency, right? And I'm just suggesting that maybe um, some inner work. So maybe this means um, just some quiet, maybe um, a better pattern of solitude in your life uh, so that it isn't sort of a life filled up from waking till sleeping with people or Netflix or noise, like some time to sort of understand your own depths, to hear the deep frequencies in your own soul. It might mean um, talking to a, a skilled therapist or, um, or it might be that there are people in your life who are ready to go to a deep place with you and you've just never given them the opportunity but it, it might mean being vulnerable. It might mean sharing your fears. It might mean letting them see you for who you really are so that uh, the deep frequency can be the place where you meet. Uh, so that's another big idea. Now, if, if, um, if our ability to find one another on a deep frequency is connected to my ability, your, your ability, an individual's ability to live at their own deep frequency, I want to suggest that there's one other sort of angle or direction that ties into all of this. And I want to see if you can observe it in a couple of scriptures, uh, for example, that come to mind. So, for example, Jesus tells a story about um, a moment of judgment with, uh, and you can read it through the lens of Jesus being the judge or God being the judge or a king in a parable being a judge. But in this story of of judgment, um, 
First of all, you have a group of people who are told by the judge or by the king or by Jesus, uh, they're told, I was, I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these people say, like, Lord, when, when did we see you naked or hungry or in prison? And when did we honor you like that? When did we move toward you like that? And the answer is this. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then Jesus says there's another group of people that the judge or the king or God speaks to and says, I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was in prison and you didn't visit me. And they say, when, right? When when did we see you and not move toward you like that? When did we see you in need and not honor you like that? And the response is this. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Uh, Elsewhere, um, there's this line in Ephesians chapter 5, which plays by the same logic, and it's simply this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, these two uh, places in the Scripture and many, many, many other places in the Scripture, um, somehow they connect our relationship to God and our relationship with one another. Right Now, you could read this at an ethical level, and I think that's an appropriate reading. What does it mean to live rightly with God, to honor God? God seems to be saying, whatever honor you owe me, whatever it would mean to rightly respect God, I want you to direct that same honor and respect toward one another. So there could be sort of an ethical reading there. But I want to propose there might be um, another reading that sort of ties into this kind of deep frequency thing that we're talking about, which is to say that... um, What if uh, the deep part of you that you want to access as you connect with the deep part of somebody else, the depths of another person, what if those depths can't exist outside of God in some way? When I talk about the depths of you, when I talk about what is real and true of you, I would ask, can anything real or true exist apart from God? Is there anything real or true that has a life of its own? Or is everything that is real and true somehow sort of rooted in God? Which, by the way, Scripture describes Christ as filling everything everywhere with his presence. The Scripture describes Christ as holding all things together. We could go on and on about the ways that the Scriptures describe God is that which energizes everything that's alive, is that which gives life to everything which is true, is that which is the source of all that is beautiful. So I would ask if the depth of you is the truest part of you, the the deepest, most central part of you, can that exist apart from God? I would propose no. And what I'm trying to say is that to meet one another on deep frequencies is to also be swimming in the deep frequency of God, whether we know it or not. And if that's the case, wouldn't a a deepening relationship with God be a, a helpful thing as we try to deepen our lives with one another? Now, Hear me carefully. I am not suggesting that people who don't believe in God are intrinsically worse at relationship. That's actually important for me to say because I don't believe that. Some of the people I know who, who are atheists through and through, I see them living with great depth with other people, and I admire it, and I like to learn from how they're doing it. The, the, the argument that I'm putting out here, and again, you can tell me afterwards why I'm wrong, but the argument that I'm putting out here would be that anywhere you find people living at, at their depth, meeting one another at their depth. I'm suggesting that encounter is happening in God whether we know it or not. But if that's the case, then wouldn't it be 
that um, growing in our sort of ability, our contemplative awareness of the presence of God, wouldn't it be that that would probably tune us in a little more skillfully to the depths that exist between you and me? Like, like wouldn't an ability to hear at that level help us hear the depths of one another? So if, if you're like aching and wondering where that depth of connection is between you and other human beings, I wonder if devoting yourself to the depth of experience that you have with God might actually help. I don't know what that looks like for you. For me, sometimes it's time in the scriptures. Um, it may just be opening up the Psalms and listening with my brain and my heart as I read those prayers. For me, sometimes it's a walk in the woods. Uh, really, I mean, just like a big, deep woods with old, old trees where I can kind of get lost. Something about that space uh, opens up something inside me that's sort of transrational. You know, it's not just me thinking about God, although I do think a lot about God, but it's something more than that that I feel opening up. It might mean um, what happens when we gather together here, when we sing and we pray together as a community, that might be helping you sort of open up to that depth frequency, right? And I just want to suggest that that might pay some dividends for the deep thing that we want between us. Now, um, that early church thing that I mentioned earlier, that, that, that deep and soulful community that they experienced together, there's a description of this early in the book of Acts, which is uh, the story of the early church. And the, the, what I'm going to show you in a second here, this comes from a verse in the book of Acts that m- many churches will kind of latch on to. They'll say, this is sort of the shape of the life of the church that we are supposed to be. So you might have heard this verse talked about before. It's Acts 2.42, and it says that the church devoted themselves to several things. They were devoted to prayer and to the, the Eucharist communion, the Lord's Supper. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. And it says this, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now here's the thing. I think that's an awful word because I grew up in church. Anybody had a fellowship hall in the church that you grew up at? Yeah, so I grew up in churches. We always had a fellowship hall. The fellowship hall was always the crappy old sanctuary that we outgrew or had more money and we didn't need to like, live in that old room anymore, right? So we made it the, the fellowship hall, which meant the place where you go and eat crappy cookies and bad punch for 30 minutes while your lives are haphazardly flung together with other people's lives and you're supposed to be friends. Can I get an amen? Anybody? Okay. This is what I think when I hear the word fellowship. Now, this is clearly my baggage issue, right? It's not actually a problem with the word. It's a problem with my experience of it, so that's on me. But I want to say that there's something deep and powerful underneath this word, because forget about fellowship or whatever that means. The word in Greek is koinonia. Let's try saying that on three. One, two, three. Koinonia. Koinonia. That's the word in the Greek. And the, and the word can be translated fellowship. The word literally means a shared participation in something. So like if you and I were business partners in the Greek, you and I could have koinonia because we are shared partners actually invested in something, right? Uh, Could mean we're in the same project together, which would be a great way of talking about the church, right? We're in this together. We are here to love our neighbors together. We are here to love God together. We are here to serve the city together. We are here to study the scriptures together. We are here to grow in faith together. We are here to be formed together. So we're in it together in the task. That could be a great way of understanding this. But again, I'm, I'm actually trying to, in this whole thing, um, convince you to be a little bit of a mystic. Because I don't think it's just a shared task. I, don't, I, I think it's actually something that language struggles to get its hands on. But I think it's saying, like, there's, there's actually something mystical going on in our shared experience of God, our shared experience of one another, that we are actually 
entering into the depths together. Something about our, our life, our souls, our experiences, our existences, they are actually swimming in the same deep thing together. By the way, if the word mystic um, feels uncomfortable for you, uh, it's my mission like, in this community like, to like, woo you into it a little bit. There's a, a famous theologian uh, of the 1960s named Karl Rahner. And Karl Rahner uh, said something like, the Christian of the future will be a mystic or he will be nothing at all. And I think what he means is we are moving into a reality, we are moving into a future world where just having ideas in our heads, just having beliefs, or just having sort of moral expectations, those kinds of things which tend to be part of faith will not be enough to sustain faith. We will have to actually open our souls to an experience of God. And I think the early church was set on fire not just because it had the same beliefs or ideas or ethics. I think the early church was set on fire because it shared an experience of God which was opened up by what Jesus had done in their lives, like an actual experience of God that wove them together, that they were swimming in these deep places together. Now, I keep talking about like a deep frequency, uh, the, this sort of uh, an attempt at a poetic or metaphorical way of describing this, this thing within us and between us that we are longing to experience together. And today I want to tell you, I think that deep frequency actually has a name. Like I think we could actually put a word on that deep frequency. And to find that name, I want to take you to one place in the scriptures where I see the three movements I've just described all held together. Because I've talked about your own inner world, right? Like, I think to live at the deep frequency, we have to be present to ourselves. We have to heal a little bit ourselves. We might have to forgive ourselves. We'd have to care for ourselves and listen to ourselves a little bit. There's one movement. And we have to actually sort of look for the deep frequency between us, right? Between you and me, there's another movement. And I'm suggesting that we also want to awaken to the depths of God's presence in our lives and between us as we connect with one another. And there's at least one place in the scripture where I see all three of those things held together. And there's another word that I actually think names the deep frequency that we are called to. The thing that will actually open up that experience for us. So for example, uh, this is in the book of Matthew chapter 22. And somebody comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Did you catch it? What I'm trying to say is I think the name of that deep frequency is love. Now, I've taken all of that time to get to this very predictable conclusion <laughs> because I think we have to forget that we know what the word love means so we can discover what it means. Because I think when we say God is love or we're here to love one another, like, it's helpful to forget what we thought that meant so that we could come to that word new and fresh and wake up to it again. That... Um, to go on your own inner journey, to face your demons, to heal from your wounds, is a faithful act of loving yourself the way that God loves you. And I don't know anyone who loves anybody else well if they are divorced from themselves, if they are fighting themselves, if they are shaming themselves, if they haven't learned how to love the very gift that God give them, gave them in being themselves, right? And that, um, to move toward one another and look for that deep frequency is to actually learn how to swim in the currents of unconditional love 
with one another. It's not just a feeling or an affection. It's not three words that we say to one another when we leave the house for the day. It's, um, it's the kind of experience that will rip you open and rebuild you. And also, that anytime anyone in the history of the world seems to have had an authentic and deep encounter with God, anytime you read the mystics, and you, you pay attention to what they're experiencing, how do they describe the music of the deep frequency? If you, if you pay attention, I would argue, you will, you will discover overwhelmingly and consistently that anybody who has actually been swimming in the deep currents of God has one name for God, and it is love. That at the very center of the nature of God is love. And that if we will swim in the deep current, we will be swimming in the waters of love. If we'll hear the deep frequency, it'll sound like love. Uh, today, to wrap things up, um, because this has ultimately been my a sort of feeble attempt at articulating a theology of presence, of, of being present with ourselves and one another and with God, um, I thought it'd be great if we just take a moment to be present here and to collect ourselves and reflect a little bit. So, uh, so what I'd like to do is just in some silence here, just to like throw out some prompts, some questions that we could be present to, and, um, and, then, I'll, and then I'll turn in a prayer before we go. Um, but we, if you're new here, by the way, we like to do this often. Uh, it's not like anything freaky, I promise. We just, uh, we know that we move so quickly through our day and that we very rarely really have the time to pray or reflect. And so as a community, we like to create that space together for a bit. And so I just want to do that for us now. So if you'd like to, um, if, if sometimes it helps me just to kind of put my feet flat on the floor. Sometimes I like to kind of shake my shoulders out and put my hands on my, on my knees just to sort of reflect an openness. Um, if sitting still right now is hard for you, sometimes um, life experience or something can make it kind of uncomfortable, you're welcome to get up and walk around a corner or whatever. Um, but that being said, I'm just going to sort of uh, open up a bit of time of reflection and, uh, and then we'll pray together. So if you want to, close your eyes if that helps you. And I'll just throw some questions out here now. And maybe it helps take a deep breath through your head, down your chest, all the way to your gut. It's amazing how even an act of breathing can be an act of presence. And now as you reflect, let me ask first, is there anyone that you need to show up for this week? Is there anyone that you want to be there for this week? And as a name or a face, or a couple of names or faces come to mind, let me just say how beautiful that there's someone else in the world uh, that calls for your presence. What a profound and beautiful thing. And by the way, if no one comes to mind, which... Um, 
may be the case for you. I would say, hey, that's okay. I would say you are just getting started. I suspect that maybe if you sat with this question for a, a bit longer, it, it might be the person you see at the grocery store once a week who rings you up. It might be a neighbor whose name you don't even know. But who do you need to show up for this week? Now, as you picture yourself being present with them, arriving, if you picture yourself uh, picking up the phone and calling them because they're a few states away, or actually getting in the car, showing up on their doorstep and being with them in the body, in the flesh, as you picture that, oh, by the way, it may not be a car ride at all. It might be the person um, who shares a bed with you that you realize you haven't really been present to in quite a while. But whoever that is, as you picture yourself showing up, arriving, being there, I wonder, is there any disharmony within you that you realize could hamper or impede the connection between you? Is there anything unresolved in your history or your present moment? Any wound from the past or fear about the future or anxiety in your day today that might make it harder to be fully present on the deep frequency with somebody else? And as you probe that or think about that, does recognizing some disharmony within you invite any work? Does it call you to any patterns of silence or practice, solitude or help? And if you realize there's some disharmony within you that might impede the harmony between you, let me just say again, how beautiful, how profoundly beautiful that we are able to listen and learn, that we are able to be provoked and awakened to find help and to seek healing and to grow. And now as you imagine yourself moving toward another person, and as you imagine yourself uh, facing whatever's within you, I wonder, is there any part of you that realizes, that feels, that senses, or that knows that those movements toward your own depth and toward somebody else's, that those are both resonating within a larger, deeper frequency called God? And do you sense God inviting you to know God more deeply? To meditate or pray or walk in the woods or open the scriptures or make a more regular pattern of being in a space like this? Do you sense God inviting you to know God more deeply? And if you do, can I just say, how profoundly beautiful
And now, God, I want to pray for us. We uh, live in a world that's really good at treble frequencies, at shallow connections, at quick hits. But you're inviting us to the depths of our lives and our relationships and even the depths of your own being and presence. And I'm so grateful. And God, I know that many of us feel that there are demons waiting for us in the deep, whether it's our own lives or the relationships around us or perhaps even you. Maybe we've been told or taught that you aren't to be trusted or that our own histories are dangerous or that something within us is a threat. But I pray that you would make us brave that you'd fill us with hope, that you would inspire us and direct us and lead us to confront those demons and chase away those lies and instead discover that in the depths there is always love waiting for us, that there's always love there waiting for us because it's at the center of your character, it's in your essence, it's who you are. And so God, we trust that wherever we move into the depths of our own lives or the people around us, that we are swimming in the waters of love and we are grateful I pray that it wouldn't just be a word for a moment, but that it would change our patterns, our behaviors, our entire way of life, that we would recognize that to live at the depths would make everything worth it, and that to ignore or avoid or miss the depths would be the greatest kind of tragedy. And God, I think about what the world would be if we moved out into it more present. What the world would be if we carried into the world our own healing, and not just our wounds. What the world would be if we met one another in the deep. What the world would be if we knew how to sense you in every moment and sense what you were calling us to. So I thank you for that hope and I pray that you keep that vision in front of us. We pray through Christ and we love you. And we all said, amen. If you're able, we stand to your feet. Uh, the next two weeks, uh, we're going to talk first about boundaries next week, which I think will be a really helpful, useful conversation. And then the week after that, we're going to talk about forgiveness, and we're going to come to Jesus' table for communion. So that's two weeks from now. Uh, oh, wait. Sorry. <laughs> a little sloppy, like I told you this week. Uh, July 3rd is two weeks from now. Um, it's also the day before the 4th of July. Uh, the South Bend Cubs don't have a game on the 4th, which means July 3rd is the big South Bend Cubs fireworks night. It means probably more foghorns than we can handle and the likelihood that most of us are doing other things. So there won't be a July 3rd Tuesday night gathering. So just make your plan right now to be here Sunday, July 1st, okay? Yeah, don't miss that. It'll be communion together. We really don't want to miss that chance. That being said, uh, let's offer these words to one another. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. I love you guys. See you next week.